You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. Hey, how's it going? My name is Kurt. I'm the lead pastor at Pangea Church. This is our online worship gathering experience. We do about two of these a month. And so you are with us in digital space. And if you're ever in Seattle, you live in Seattle and you need a space to come and do the church thing, of course, once reopening happens, you will be welcome to hang with us. But for now, we're doing this digital space sort of thing, as well as other groups and other things that are going on. And, and we're right now in the middle of a series called Unstoppable, the Kingdom of God in the Book of Acts. And what we've been trying to do is really just trace this theme of Kingdom of God and how God worked immediately after the resurrection and what happened in the world right after Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to heaven. What happens that makes this movement so compelling, so energized, so progressive, so just different than the world around them that that they flourish. They keep going. They do not stop. Hence the title Unstoppable. And, and so we've looked at all kinds of things. We're about halfway through our journey now. And if you want to track backwards, of course, these are all available on Facebook Live. They're also available on our podcast as audio. But I want to step in today to a chapter in Acts called Acts chapter 17. And, and I think it's really important, really relevant, because I think it's quite political. Now, today we're going to talk about politics and Jesus, and this is a hard subject, especially if you are a Christian in the United States. Why do I say that? Well, in our context, we are increasingly polarized. We're increasingly infighting and um, kind of canceling each other out, and it's very fascinating if you look at the, the Facebook feed you have. There's a couple of things that come to mind. Number one, uh, many of us have Facebook feeds that have been curated to our particular niches and likes. So if you lean liberal or Democrat, you're going to see a lot of stuff about Biden and Bernie and all of the folks that lean to the left. And if you lean to the right or if you're a Republican, you're going to see a lot of things probably from Fox News or Rush Limbaugh or Glenn Beck or other people that maybe give the impression that you're used to, right? And then once in a while, these two streams of reality intersect. And when they do, it's sometimes fine, and other times can be quite relationally explosive. You know, where they really intersect a lot is like friends from high school. Uh, that, that's one area that I've noticed it. Uh, family members, perhaps. Right there, there could be family and historic friendships that have quite differing views now that some of us have grown up, etc. So, so it is not uncommon to see these intersections happen. But here's what is hard: is we're increasingly doing this. We talk past each other. We we don't know how to talk with each other. And and what I want to do is I'm not going to solve that problem. Unfortunately, I can't. Um, that that's a problem that uh, we're going to have to keep working on as people of Jesus, right? We're going to have to figure out what it means to talk about Jesus as the supreme uh, center of anything that we think about when we talk about politics. But but it's very easy 
to be a Christian and to appeal to Jesus for your ideas. And I'm probably guilty of it in areas that I'm blind to. You might be guilty of it. People we know that we're like, they definitely aren't really using the Bible well. They're guilty of it and don't even know it, right? This is something we all struggle with and have to continue to wrestle with. And now this episode in the book of Acts is going to push us to see really the essence of the Jesus movement when it comes to its political presence during the first century. We looked at last week, by the way, in Acts chapter 16, Paul has a passport. We talked about him as a, a sojourner in one sense, but a sojourner in this idea that, you know, he goes from place to place and he represents a different kingdom. He represents the kingdom of God, the way of Jesus, and does so in this massive empire. But Paul, as he goes from place to place to place, also is a Roman citizen, and he's a Jewish person with Roman citizen. Here, check this out. Here's some layers of interest that I think Paul brings to the table. He is a Jewish man trained as a Pharisee rabbi, okay? Tracking so far. So, so already in Jewish society, this would have made him sort of privileged from other people in Jewish society. But then you take it a step further, and he is also a Roman citizen, which would have been quite rare, but we, you know, it could be gifted, it could be something you purchased. You know, there's all kinds of reasons a Jewish man like Paul could have had Roman citizenship. We don't have the answers to that, but Acts mentions it multiple times. And so what does Paul do when he's mistreated by the local authorities? He says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. And he actually, in the, in, Acts chapter 16 says, you know what? I'm going to make sure people know that you mistreated and abused a Roman citizen. So I'm not going to leave quietly. You all have to escort me out of town. And so he actually is escorted in front of all of the people of the city out of town and they beg him to leave. Why? Well, because first of all, he was causing uh, an uproar because people did not want to hear about Jesus and did not want, of course, if you remember the story, he had healed someone of a spirit that helped predict the future, right? And and this had screwed up the economy of a certain business person and this caused a bunch of people to get angry. Okay, so that's the backstory and Paul says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. You're going to treat me well. You're going to be embarrassed for how you treated me. I'm a Jesus follower who happens to have a passport. Come treat me with respect. What does he do? Well, it sounds a lot like the kind of shaming that Jesus tells followers to do in Matthew chapter 5, right? He says, look, if someone tells you that you have to go one mile with a pack. So if a Roman soldier says, hey, peasant, come here, carry my stuff for one mile. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to just go the extra mile. And why do you do that? Well, in the ancient world, there were limits to cruelty, right? There were limits. And so in the ancient world, when Jesus says, go the second mile, it's very likely that that would have been excessive. And if that's excessive, what's it do? Well, it makes that Roman soldier look pretty bad because now this peasant has had to go two miles and people start to wonder, wow, what a cruel person. What, what an evil system this is that the Romans have, right? So, so you, you get the idea, like, like Jesus saying, go the second mile to expose 
the system. It's similar to what Paul does by saying, escort me out the city. Again, these are all very politically loaded Jesus things that are going down. And so while they're doing all of this, there are moments that really bring to the surface that this is a politically charged movement. No wonder they called it the kingdom of God. And in our day, we want often, we want either one of two scenarios. We want Jesus to be the center point of all of our political jargon so that we can just justify anything that we feel like we need to justify by saying Jesus this, Jesus that, God this, God, you know, and, and, and that's one approach. And then the opposite approach is let's keep God out of our political sphere. Like you can be religious privately, but not publicly. And we split these up and say, you know what? Sometimes as a Christian, even we might do this and say like, look at uh, Jesus doesn't want me to hit enemies or be violent or whatever, personally in my private spiritual sphere, but I may need to go do some violent things as an emissary of the state, right? We, can, we do all kinds of things to make Jesus political how we are political. And none of us are gonna escape this perfectly. But what I want to do today is I want to take some cues from the Apostle Paul. We're also going to jump to a passage in Jesus, and we're just going to notice a couple of things. I'm not going to do much more than that. I have about two or three points to make, and then hopefully I've just set the plate out there for you to sort of start getting some Jesus-y nourishment as you think through what it means to be political in 2020 when we have Trump, Biden, and dot, dot, dot on the ballot. So let's do this. Okay, so as we think about this, we are now in Acts chapter 17, and this is where it starts in our story today. In verse 1, it says, after Paul and Silas had passed through the Am, excuse me, Amphipolis and Apollonia, <laughs> I'm really terrible at these words right now. Uh, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days argued with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This is the Messiah. Jesus, who I am proclaiming to you. Now, some of them, verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. <laughs> this is uh, the New Revised Standard Version, and it gets a little proper sometimes. And what I think is meant here, not a few of the leading women. In other words, like quite a few, right? There, there weren't just a few. There was more than a few. Okay, verse 5. But the Jews became jealous, and with the help of some ruffians in the marketplaces, they formed a mob and the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities shouting, 
These people who have been turning the world upside down. Let's stop there. These people, again, those people, right? Always that other category. We talked about this last week. Those other people, these people that don't fit what we want it to be, don't fit our mold, don't fit our ideals. These people who have been turning the world upside down. That, that is such a big image and accusation. And I want to be very clear. I don't think they're exactly lying. Now they're bending words, but they are not lying. These people are turning the world upside down. I mean, Jesus has sent them into the world to do exactly that, to show them God's love and God's mercy and God's generosity. And that the Roman system of governance is wrong. Not by becoming better Romans and figuring it out, although they will use their influence and privilege in that particular system, which is way different than our system. And, and they'll, they'll bend it towards kingdom purposes like we saw last time. But they really just want to make sure that the way of Jesus is the counter way, the alternative way, the better way to be human in the world. So these people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. In other words, by the way, they have a reputation. Verse 7, And Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, or of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. Ha ha ha. You follow this, right? So, so there's an emperor. There is a Caesar. There is Tiberius, uh, I, I believe at this stage of the game, it's still Tiberius. And, and Tiberius is running the world. He has a very long reign, several decades, and, and he is in charge of the world. But these other people, they're saying there's another king named Jesus. And this is a problem for us Roman faithful people. This is a problem for those of us who want to be faithful to the emperor, even though this emperor represents a lineage that conquered our people. Don't worry about that. We're going to be the right ones. We're going to be faithful because there is no other king named Jesus. Jesus is a fraud. We're down with the emperor. So, so again, this is loaded. And here's where it goes in verse 8. The people and the city officials were disturbed when they heard this. And after they had taken Baal from Jason and the others, they let them go. Okay. So, so this, my friends, is where I want to land. They have a reputation for believing that there is another king and it's not a Caesar. It is not the emperor. Now, now in our world, like this is not that big a deal, right? Like we're always fighting about who the best leader is or who the best person in charge is, right? But in this world, this is blasphemy to the Roman system. To say that there's another king that could upstage the, the Caesars of the world is blasphemy for civil religion. It's out of bounds. But, but let's really wrestle with this. This is what I think is so fascinating. Christians were actually known for this. They were known for their allegiance to another king. And, and I just wish, I just want to be really honest this morning and say, I wish this was actually what we were known for. It's not what we're known for in the 21st century very often. 
We are not often known for our allegiance to another king. You know what we're known for? We're known for hypocrisy. We're known for anti-scientific postures towards reality. We're known for begging people to give us our rights back and being willing to fight for our rights rather than lay them down like Jesus teaches us. You know what we're known for? Not allegiance to king and that king being named Jesus. We're known for trying to align the world with our kingdom, our political agenda, our way of running things. And this, my friends, I think is a problem. The, the dudes in Acts, the, the, this community of Jesus followers, these women that were devout and inspired to follow because of Paul and Silas's preaching, these men of influence that said, we're going to follow Jesus, these Jewish followers who followed and became part of this amazing family. They were known for their allegiance to King Jesus, and it confronted the ideology of what it meant to honor the emperor. This, my friends, is the kind of reputation that I wish for us as Christians in the 21st century. But we've, we've strayed really far from this because we often have in mind that to be good Christians is to be good Republicans. To be good Christians, and this is maybe a little less commonly the narrative, but, but to be good Christians maybe is to be a good Democrat. And, and what I want to say is to be a good Christian is to recognize only God is truly good. And what we're invited to do is to do all that we can to become more and more like that God who Jesus reveals. And so that this God's goodness can be known by more and more and more of our neighbors. And when we put politics before Jesus, we have missed an opportunity. Now, here's what I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say, therefore, don't be political. I'm going to invite us, because I think this is what the New Testament does, and this passage sort of just opens the door a little bit, to be political in a way that is wise and also has in mind the people that Jesus surrounded himself with throughout his ministry. Who did he surround himself with? All kinds of different people, many of whom were poor and the outcasts. King Jesus always takes particular concern to make sure that the outsider is in, that no one is below, but everyone is on equal footing. We miss this so often when we forget that our allegiance, our sole allegiance is to be to another king, namely Jesus and no one else. And here's the real world that they lived in. They lived in a real world that was hard, but their allegiance had real world ramifications. They weren't mere spiritual ideals. Their allegiance had real world ramifications. They're, they weren't mere spiritual ideals. This is another challenge. We sometimes say things like, blessed are the poor, which is a great ideal for when Jesus comes back. 
And we forget that when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in the first century um, situation amongst his Jewish sisters and brothers, he's talking about people whom Rome had excluded, whom Rome had put at the bottom of the barrel, who Rome basically thought were awful. They would call them dogs. They were worthless. And Jesus says, no, no, no. These people, the poor, the meek, they are the ones who get to understand and be honored in my kingdom. These are real people in a real situation, not some sort of spiritual, like, I just want to be good. It's let's love like Jesus. So their allegiance only turns the world upside down if it actually is changing people's lives, especially those at the margins. Think about that story in Mark, Mark's gospel in chapter five, where Jesus comes across a demon-possessed man who he is possessed by not just one demon, but a lot of demons who identify themselves as legion. Legion is a Roman military unit of like 5,000 or so troops. And what does Jesus do? He frees that man, sends all of those demons into these pigs. The pigs run off the hillside and drown. And the economy of the local area is destroyed. And Jesus has sent a powerful message that the powers of this world, both spiritual and physical, that put people into bondage are going to have to run and flee because Jesus is now here and he's a different kind of king who sees the person in bondage as brother who needs to be liberated, as sister who needs to be freed of patriarchy. This is Jesus. It is not for Jesus a standard idea to simply have teachings that are ideals Jesus always pushes people towards what is real. And this allegiance that Paul and his buddies have taken on has now had ramifications. And the way it gets described by outsiders is they're turning the world upside down. My friends, what has gone wrong that you and I are not known for turning the world upside down because of our radical allegiance to Jesus and his concern for those on the outsides, the down and out, the margins. Friends, we have an invitation to proclaim another king by caring about what this king cares about without finding all of our identity in the system, but seeing are there moments and places where we can tilt it just a little bit to be a more just and hopeful situation for those folks who find themselves at the margins and who are affected in real time, in a real world, by the powers of the the Caesars and the power brokers of our world in the 21st century. So we go to Jesus. And Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and I believe I'm going to skip ahead a couple slides. This is, yeah, Luke chapter 20. And in Luke chapter 20, verse 21, it says this. We're now with Jesus. They asked him, Teacher, we know that you are correct in what you say and teach. 
You don't show favoritism, but teach God's way as it really is. Does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Since Jesus recognized their deception, he said to them, show me a coin. Whose image and inscription does it have on it? They answered this way. They just say, Caesar's? They replied. He said to them, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. Okay. So I want us to look for a moment. You know, Jesus interacts with the Roman system just a few times, but when he does, it is always charged with very precise political rhetoric. Now, this idea of give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar has been used and abused so many times. And so let's just look at the coin for a moment. It would have been a coin that looks something like this. This is a coin that has the name, of course, of Tiberius. This is Tiberius, the emperor um, of the time, stepson, I believe, to Augustus. And, and, and Tiberius is considered divine because, of course, his dad was divine and everyone in that succession, that line, is considered a god, in some sense a god on the earth, and eventually a god with the gods. And so this coin, not only is it blasphemous, but this coin has a literal image on it. And so Jesus says, okay, whose image is on the coin? And then they say, well, of course it's Caesar. And so Jesus responds and it's brilliant. This is what he says. He goes, look, give Caesar back what, what's his already. Right? If it has his face on it, just give it to him. There's his image. It's right there on the coin. And he says, give to God what is God's. And we get to answer the question, what is God's that Jesus would have been referring to? And there is no doubt in this passage what Jesus actually has in mind. Jesus is saying, Caesar's image, great, good for him. But you all who are my followers, you don't have to bear, you don't have to worry about Caesar's image. You are the image of God. What belongs to God? Give God what is God's? Well, God says, you, human being, made in my likeness and my image, you, your whole life, your community life, this belongs to God. So go out and live politically in the world like that is true. Now, Jesus doesn't say, don't pay your taxes. He says, give it back to him. You know, there's, there's this common idea. There's, there's a lot of ideas. Okay, so there's a lot of ideas, right? Some people are like, taxes are dumb. We don't want to give to the empire. They do all these bad things. I agree. Uh, our empire, like any empire, does really bad things. There's a lot of uh, drone strikes in recent history under Obama and now under Trump and probably under the next one, you know? This isn't going away. Uh, war after war after war. Our tax dollars fund all of that stuff. Our tax dollars also fund the, the very much, um, you know, financially depleted by comparison to our military spending, um, social programs that help make our country better, like education, 
um, welfare programs and all the things you can think of that really healthcare stuff that really build up people's lives. But, but here's the thing. Uh, you would think that if we're having to touch anything attached to this evil system, that, that we would be told, don't pay taxes. But the New Testament actually says over and over again, just pay your stinking taxes. And how does Jesus get around that? He just says, look, it is what it is. And Caesar's image is on the coin. You can't change that. And Caesar thinks it's a big deal. Give Caesar what's Caesar's. But here's the deal. You are the image of God which means you have something more profoundly beautiful than Caesar could ever have. And you have a responsibility to your brother, your sister, your neighbor. Be God's image. Free up others to do likewise. You want to know Jesus's political theology. That's basically it. Jesus says, look, go live like you're actually an image bearer of God. What does an image bearer of God do? Well, according to Genesis, you are the reflector of God's light and love into the world, into creation, so that the world around you can flourish. You are the one who represents God to the world. Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God, Paul says, and that very image is who we are called to become like. We're called to be conformed to the image of the perfect image who is Jesus. So go be the image of God. So that looks like love your neighbor as yourself. That looks like love your enemies. That looks like saying my rights are going to be filtered through the attitude Jesus displayed when he let down his rights for the sake of others. Be God's image. And here's the other part of this. Love your neighbor in other words, free up others to do likewise. Our political views are needing some reform if this isn't in perspective. How will we be political in a way that says we are the radical alternative people of God that are known for our other king, namely Jesus, and at the same time, who turned the world upside down by saying, whatever privilege I have, whatever little bit of influence I can have in this thing, whatever my passport grants me, just like Paul used his passport to grant him what he needed for kingdom purposes. I believe that Jesus says, as an image bearer of the divine, you shine light in places with whatever bit of privilege you have. Free others up to not hide their light, but to shine their light, free others up who have been dehumanized by a broken system to find more and more of the humanity. Not that we can somehow save people at the margins, but rather that we can learn from people that are different from at least me as a white male. And perhaps those layers and those intersections of your life look a lot different than mine. But whatever it looks like, we are to use what we've got as image bearers of God to come alongside and to come under and learn from and grow and, and, and tilt our privilege towards the flourishing of others. That, my friends, is what it means to represent another king. A world like ours wants us to do politics for us, 
Politics that make me feel better, make me feel more secure, make me feel safer. Jesus says, none of that matters. What matters most is that you be the image of God, that you represent this alternative king, that you become the kind of people who free others up to do likewise. This is one of the core reasons why I believe the book of Acts portrays the movement of Jesus as unstoppable. As we are in this political season, can we be people who reclaim the reputation for King Jesus being the centerpiece of all things we do? We're not going to baptize the left. We're not going to baptize the right. We're not going to baptize any other thing. What we want to do is be baptized image bearers of God who saturate ourselves in the power and love and beauty and grace of the Holy Spirit so that where people are thirsty, we can just say, we've got water. We've got something that we can contribute to the flourishing of all of us. That, my friends, is the invitation, I believe, in this moment to be the kind of people who live in the way of Jesus by being representatives of another king, the king of kings, the kingdom of God. May we go and be the image of God so that our reputation might be that the world is being flipped upside down. <music>